Gateway, welcome, Kyle here. Uh, as we come today, let me just invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, whether you're going analog or digital, we will be in verse 12, Mark 11, 12. This is what we read. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going on a bit of a journey today. Uh, there's going to be a few stops before we get to our teaching text in Mark. We're going to take these stops with some Hebrew prophets to kind of set the stage in route to where we're going. And before we do, I just want to take a moment uh, to talk about form and substance. Now, this isn't a lecture, this is a sermon, but to get us into this, uh, let me just give you a quick definition here. By form, I'm just simply talking about the shape of something, and by substance, I'm just talking about the materials composing that something. So to help stir our imaginations and uh, really get us into an understanding about form and substance, here's a little example. Let me just start us off with a question. Have you ever experienced that heart-wrenching moment of an empty box, and more specifically, an empty carton? So go with me. I know this might sound a little silly, but this will, this will connect. Uh, oftentimes, these moments of the empty carton, they're preceded by what feels like a millennia-long deliberation, either between you, a friend, a partner, spouse, whomever, or even just the internal dialogue of what should I have to eat? 
Now, I, I recognize that's quite a privileged question we get to ask here today. We assume then that there is something to eat. But nevertheless, we ask this question, what should I eat? We deliberate, should I have this, that, the other? Finally, we arrive at the conclusion, it's not maybe the best thing, but we say a bowl of cereal is in our future. This is what we're going for. And so we go, we head into the kitchen, we go into the pantry, we get all of the necessary accoutrements, and then we're there, we open up the fridge, we pick up the carton, and what is this evil? <laughs> the carton is empty. Immediately we are like filled with this emotional agitation, like a cocktail of frustration and annoyance and loss and perhaps sadness. Okay, I know this may be a bit over the top to illustrate form and substance uh, with an empty carton, but what is it? about that lack of substance, the lack of milk in a carton that unravels, even in a, in a small sense, our sense of well-being. Well, you see that the, the response to this question is actually nested within our teaching text today because form without substance is vacant and lifeless. And we sense it deep in our bones in those moments. But when form lacks substance, it doesn't matter how beautiful the carton is. It doesn't matter how inspiring the quote may be on the carton. If there is no substance, and in this case, if there is no milk, it is useless. The form, the carton, it, it has no significance in your life. You could say it this way, the form is a sham because form without substance is vacant and lifeless. And God relates this is always a great segue into anything that God relates, that God is specifically in Jesus relates to us in his the fullness of his humanity. He relates. But throughout the, the witness of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, what we just call our Bible, God relates to that interior unraveling. In the Hebrew Bible, we come across these moments when God is, is seeking substance. He's seeking life among his people, these people who he's called out of nothing, people who he's called who are his enemies, and he's given them a name and a future and a land, and he comes to, to be with them and share in the abundance of life, to, to share in the substance, only to be met with this vacant form. So, so hear these words from these prophets on route to Mark 11. Hosea, a prophet of God, says this, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its season I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they love. See, in this moment, God remembers the substance of his people, the, the fruitfulness of in unexpected places. It's like in Genesis 22 when Abraham entrusts himself fully to the goodness of God. He's up on Mount Moriah. It's him and his son, his beloved son, who he goes up and God has asked for Abraham to give his, the life of his son over into his hands. And Abraham trusts that this God, that there is another way forward, and God indeed makes another way. And in that moment, in that moment of trust and faith, God, he counts, he regards Abraham as righteous. He, he finds faith in this unexpected place. See that first line, like wild grapes in the wilderness. You just, here they are. <laughs> this is who Israel is to God. 
He remembers them. And when he shows up, though, they've consecrated. They've essentially given all of their allegiances over to a thing that is detestable, this false god. Describing a similar ache in God's heart, this prophet Micah says this in Micah 7.1, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, and listen to this, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. God shows up. He shows up. This is the theme of God. This is the character of God. He shows up to a people who he's put in a land so that they might flourish. And when he shows up to share in the substance of their life, he finds it not only vacant of anyone, when he does seek them out and finds them, they've turned inward on each other and are bringing death. Lastly, hear these words from the prophet Jeremiah, who's often called the weeping prophet. He's kind of a bummer to read. In the season just after this reform uh, of, of King Josiah, Jeremiah is preaching this sermon at the temple. He's standing there at this temple that was once like a fairgrounds to all the gods. The grandfather of Josiah, the king of Israel, his grandfather Manasseh, had done every evil and detestable thing in the land, and reform came. It was a great return to God. And then these words of rebuke come to Israel through Jeremiah. And then these words in Jeremiah 8, we read them here. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. See, there's form, but no substance. In each and every scene, there is form, but no substance. God comes to his people desiring to share in the fruitfulness of their trust in him and he finds nothing because once again, Form without substance is vacant and lifeless. But get this, a substantive life with God is a life of faith and trust. A substantive life with God is a life of faith and trust. And we need to keep one, of, one thing in mind here is that uh, when we think about Israel and we think about these prophets' words to these nations, Israel's national identity, their way of life is part and parcel with their worship. See, see, Israel's not defined by their economy. Israel's not defined by uh, some sort of um, values that have been codified in a document, the law of God. Israel is defined by their worship of God. It's not their economy. It's not their military. It's, it's not their law books. It is their worship of God. And when we read these passages that depict Israel binding themselves to other gods and and the absence of righteousness, this, this right standing with God and neighbor, we're ultimately reading about Israel's lack of substance, their lack of faith. And I love how Eugene Peterson, reflecting on Jeremiah's words, I love how he summarizes this. He says, For religion is not a matter of arrangements or places or words but of life, 
of love, of mercy and obedience, of persons in a passion of faith. It's God's prophets are calling Israel back to faith because worship flows from faith, from trust, from dependence on God and allegiance to him. Worship flows from faith. And so the prophets are calling the people back to faith so that their national identity, their true selves might be restored as the ones who worship God. See, faith is the thing that fills. Faith is the thing that fills the form. It's not the other way around. But the people of Israel, they failed to heed the prophet's call that God had given through them. And in turn, they, they, gave, they gave their allegiances over. They gave their allegiances over to other gods. And, and, and what God allows to happen is this. He honors their choice. God gives them over to where they have given themselves. And I just have to say, this is actually the scariest reality. Oftentimes, I'll hear in conversations, I'll read in an article, I myself will have these conversations that, like, I do not want the wrath of God. I don't want the mighty hand of God. I want to humble myself. I don't want to be humbled by him. And that is true. And those are things that ought to like evoke our imaginations and think about the awe of God. But the thing that I want least for anybody is for God to withdraw his presence. This is indeed the outcome, is that God withdraws his presence from his people. This breaks out in the season of exile. The people are dispersed among the nations. And there are some who are diligent, who are resilient, who, who resolve in their hearts to pursue God. We read about them. Daniel is one of these people. And yet, by and large, the people, the people become like the nations they're scattered into. And God, he, he, the, the land receives its rest. The people come back in. And then when Jesus comes back on the scene, he comes back with this same call to faith that the prophets called out with. He, he comes back with the same call to faith. And it's interesting, it's met with the similar response. So let's turn back to our teaching text with all of this in mind to just work through Jesus' evaluation in Mark 11. So starting in verse 12, we read this again. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, let's just stop right there. I love that uh, Jesus' hunger is the narrative mechanism that moves the story forward. <laughs> I think that's um, rather beautiful, but uh, we'll see how that's significant here in a moment. But on first note, let's just uh, track the movement here. See, in the latter part of Mark, the, these last six chapters, Mark is tracking seven days of Jesus' life, what we call the Holy Week. And so Jesus had come in triumphal entry down the Mount of Olives, in through the East Gate. He's done all this. He stands in the temple, surveys, and then leaves. He goes back to Bethany. Now we see he is coming back. And then we read this verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not fig season, where it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
See, over the centuries in Israel, the fig tree, as we heard in the prophets, the fig tree came to stand as a symbol for the Jewish people. And more specifically, for the Jewish leadership. But before we're tempted to think that in this scene, Jesus is like hangry or something, let's just remember that we just read about God seeking out the people of Israel. He was seeking the first fruit of the fig and found nothing. So this is where Jesus' hunger is relevant. See, Jesus is coming back towards Jerusalem and he's hungering for that first fruit. This is, this is brilliant. Jesus is in the God spot. Where everyone's imaginations would lead them in this moment is that this is what God would do. God comes to seek out the people of Israel, to, to share in the substance of their life. Now Jesus is doing this. When God shows up to his, to his people to, to share in the substance of their life and their faith under the provision of his care, there's nothing to be had. And this is where we meet Jesus here. And so he curses the fig tree, this symbol of the people, the symbol of the leadership, and ultimately the symbol of the temple. And so as Jesus makes his way into the city, as we'll see here in a moment, and really into the heart of the city, the temple, he stops to curse this fig tree. And, and just ask yourself this question. If you were to go around cursing the symbol of the religious establishment, how do you think that would go for you if you were in Jesus' day? The, the, the answer is pretty clear. It's not, it doesn't go well. This is for sure part of the reason why Jesus is put to death. Because in, and in Israel, there is no disconnect between God and country. It's not like secular space and religious space. It's all together. So the fig tree stands for Israel, her leadership, her worship, all of her. So think about it this way. When Jesus curses the fig tree, this would be like Jesus burning the American flag en route to the White House. This is a like deep incendiary subversive act calling out the leadership and the temple apparatus itself. See, Jesus has come to say that Israel's form of religious devotion is vacant and lifeless. And we actually see that on vibrant display in this next verse. In verse 15, we read, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But if you, but you have made it, a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then this, and when evening came, they went out of the city. What a day. So at this point, uh, specifically in verses 15 to 19, the preacher's temptation, my temptation, is to slant this passage a few different ways. First, it is to uh, like re rebuke commercialization in the place of worship in the household of God, specifically like manipulative practices that would put God's blessing on the hook, a little bit of bait and switch where if you give this much, then you will receive this much kind of a thing. It, it, 
Simply put, that type of emotional and spiritual manipulation has no place in the household of God. It simply does not. But that's not entirely the thrust here. So this, there's a second temptation to highlight the place. And this is the one where my heart leans, especially in light of this cultural moment. See, the, the place is the outer courts. This is where the God-fearing Gentiles would worship, or at least try See, what I'm getting at is that the place designed for worship for God-fearing Gentiles is reassigned to a, a commercial market. How are they supposed to pray? How are they supposed to act with devotion toward God? When all around them, there are distractions in that space, things that are actually minimizing and, and telling them, you have no space here. You should think yourself lucky to be here. See, in a moment such as this, a moment of national unrest that is spurred on by this collective awakening to a racialized past and present, this scene preaches because there is no doubt that this is a ethnically maligning action. Straight up, that's what this is. But that too is not the main thrust. Even when Jesus is saying, even when Jesus is calling forth the prophet Isaiah's words and saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, that is not the main thrust. See, the main thrust, when Jesus stops the temples buying and selling, when Jesus drives out all the people, he's saying that the practices are vacant. He's saying that they don't lead to God. That they no longer stand as a pathway to God. In reality, Jesus is saying that this whole temple apparatus is vacant and lifeless. But the substance, the substance is not done. He says, this may be vacant and lifeless, but there is a new form. This does not lead to God, but you know what does? Me. Jesus stands in the place of where everyone and anyone would encounter God. He says that he is now the way. And the fig tree and the temple are all about the restoration of faith in Israel. Because faith is not lost. The substance is not lost. The form is what's been so corrupted that Jesus is willing to do away with it. Because a new form has arrived in Jesus. Just look down to the next scene to see what I mean. This is in verse 20. We read, As they passed by in the morning, so they're coming back into the city, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. The, the curse stuck. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you 
your trespasses. Notice that last line there. And trust me, we'll get to the whole faith and praying and throwing mountains into the sea thing in a second. (laughs) See that last line, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. Let me just ask, like, how many of you consider prayer the space of forgiveness? So often I experience this theme in my preaching of coming back to forgiveness and reconciliation. And um, one of the one of the first sermons that I preached here, well, like almost a year ago, um, was about the reconciling nature of God. I, I said a thing that I would write this letter to my dad. I have an estranged relationship with my father, and um, there's been past hurts that linger into the present, and um, to release him into forgiveness. And I can't tell you how many times I started that, but I had never finished that letter. I had never really allowed that forgiveness to take root. And so I, I in one sense, have to like confess that I lied to you. <laughs> I would write a letter and never completed it. And in another sense, I have to, to um, just say that God is gracious and that through an activation of like just prayer, and really this passage, this letter's been done. <laughs> The letter's been completed. So what Jesus is, is getting at here is that there is now a new place where forgiveness can take hold. See, if the form and the faithless worship at the temple are obsolete, then where can forgiveness be found? Well, Jesus tells us right here that forgiveness can be found in the prayerfulness of his followers. He says, pray, pray. Whenever you stand praying, the assumption of prayer, forgive if if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. See, I think this is less a you can curse plants and move mountains kind of a faith and prayer and and more of of a call to faith that is an engine for the fruitfulness of the life of God. We we could say it this way, that prayer is this pathway, this pathway whereby faith can move that can be expressed in worship. So if, if worship extends through faith and faith is cultivated in the life of prayer, it's like this whole thing is woven together in life with God. It's as though Jesus is calling for an activation of faith so that the body of Jesus that he is raising up can itself be a community of worship and can be known by their true identity as those who have been reconciled to God in Christ. See, this stuff is woven together in this beautiful way. And what's so beautiful is that this faith, it doesn't doubt. And this doesn't mean it's the absence of questions. A faith that doesn't doubt is a faith that has this willingness to operate with like a baseline understanding that God is real and that God desires to do amazing things through you. Scholar Frederick Brunner, he says it this way, that doubt in Jesus' teaching is the decision to live as though God does not exist. So in other words, to pray is then to activate in our imaginations in life that God does exist. (laughs) And yet he says, he says these words, pray, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, 
these things are caught up together. See, the, the point here is that Jesus, Jesus is teaching in this hyperbolic way. This is like what, what scholars would call a hyperbolic principle, not a metaphysical promise. This isn't that you would then ask for these things, I want insert whatever your desire may be, and if you trust and believe that it's yours already, that it'll end up in your driveway, in your pocket, in your bank account, etc. This is this principle of, of prayerful devotion, of unifying ourselves with God, of being united to God in Christ, and that the movement of God in Christ towards us is one of reconciliation, of forgiveness, and that that is this space where God is building out a life of faith in those who love him. See, this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus, so the cursing of the fig tree. And in this last recorded miracle, it doesn't bring life. It actually brings death. And I think that, it, that Jesus does this to remind us that, that life, specifically life in God, it doesn't come through, as Peterson said earlier, like our arrangements or places or words, but a substantive life with God comes by faith in Jesus. It comes by trusting him. Trusting that the forms that we used to cling to are obsolete in Jesus' name. <laughs> that those things actually don't bring life like we want it. Faith is the pathway whereby God activates true life. Faith is the place where prayer and forgiveness live. It's the new place of life with God, is in the people of God. So if you're like me, um, I get caught up in this cycle of thinking about the form a lot. In fact, a lot of my job has to take into consideration the form of the church. And so I find myself obsessing over aesthetics and things like that. And so I just need to remember, maybe I'm just inviting you into the same call to remembrance, that whatever thing we have, whether it's this online thing or we're in person or a, a time of prayer, whatever it may be, these are just containers for our worship. These are just containers to, to make us truly hungry for the things of God, to stir up our faith and our appetite for God. Because if faith does not drive our worship, and I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking like our whole life devotion, 24-7, 365. If, if faith does not drive our worship, then no form will ever give us the life we want. It will just be vacant and lifeless. There's a famous pastor from the mid-20th century. He lived through Nazi oppression and then died at the hands of Nazi oppression. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and when he talked about faith, he talked about faith as this throwing ourselves into the arms of God. And I think what Bonhoeffer is getting at, and where I want us to kind of land our time here, is about the arrangement of our lives around Jesus. You see, we could come to a passage like this. It's like a book ending of a fig tree with temple in the middle. <laughs> like we could come to this and just go, wow, this is strange and in no way applies to my life. The form and substance thing, ah, kind of interesting, but my life is substantive. My life with 
God is good? See, what if, what if Jesus is inviting us to throw ourselves into the arms of God? What if he's inviting us to abandon the things that we build up in our life to cultivate comfort and rest on our own terms and in turn entrust ourselves to him? I actually think that that is the most pressing reality of this passage, is that Jesus is saying he will abandon whatever the form for however amount of time to get to the substance. See, I don't know if in this season you have grown accustomed to a form of the past or a form of the present, but no form will ever give you or me the life we long for in God. The life we long for comes by faith. Or to say it another way, the life we long for comes by our true allegiance to God and to God alone. We are being tested in this season, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But God has chosen to make his home in his church. He's invited us to do the same, to abide, to remain in him. He has come. He has come. We must ask ourselves, Gateway, this scary question. Will he find fruit here? I think he will. I think he will. And my prayer, my prayer is that we will remain with him. That we will, with Jesus, throw aside any form that distracts us from the substance of life with God. So to that end, let us pray. God, I ask that you, through the power of your word, would stir our hearts, that we would remember that it is by faith and faith alone that we are drawn into your presence, that we are invited into this divine dance of love, Father, Son, Spirit, that we are united with you would we not neglect orienting and reorienting our whole lives around you, God? Setting aside the, the vacant and lifeless forms that we say bring us life, but in the, in the deepest of our bones, in the deepest of our hearts, we know that that's not true. Give us the courage that Jesus has in these moments to, to throw these things aside, to say that they are dead and lifeless, to name them as such so that we might turn and be received as we truly are, as those who are loved by God in Christ, who then can move and keep in step with him. So God, come, we pray. Fill us with your presence and help us to live lives of faith that result in lives of worship for your glory and our good. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.